Hi everyone, thanks for being here. It's Friday, October 26, 2007. Uh, welcome to our Neurobiology podcast series. I'm Selma Qureshi. I'll be hosting a discussion today with um, our guest, assistant professor here at UTSA, Fidel Santa Maria. Um, on our panel joining us today for the roundtable discussion are a few of his colleagues here at UTSA, all um, neurobiology faculty here. Charles Wilson. Yeah, I, and I want to add something, and that is, which I should have said it last time, that is our lead-in music, which nobody heard, but which is latently there and will be there in the final version of this, is music by our previous discussant, uh, Dr. Jim Tepper at Rutgers University. And thanks to Jim for providing that music to us and to keep those musical interludes coming because we're going to want to change it. <laughs> um, Todd Troyer. I'll be taking care of Fidel's cast the, during the next week. Uh, Brian Derrick. Yes, I'm just here to add my two cents. And Carlos Palladini. I'm here again. Thank you very much for having me here again. Colleen Witt. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm a, the podcast pilgrim here today. and just glad to be here. And Rama Rutnam. Thank you, Salma. Glad to be here. And I thought I was looking after Fidel's cast. <laughs> so for more content other than who's going to be watching Fidel's Cats, um, on each of our, our panelists and our guests, you can visit our website at snrp.utsa.edu. Um, so let's just start. Fidel, um, as a biophysicist, you said that you're a believer in the principle that structure informs functions. Um, I guess it's no surprise that the cerebellum has been your model system of choice from the very start of your training. But it's sort of interesting that it was based on structure that Eccles proposed that Purkinje cells, um, uh, some parallel fiber excitation to form beams of excitation. So, but you and your colleagues disagree with this. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about that and also maybe talk a bit about what are the limits of gleaning function from structure. Um, for example, when we look at the cerebellar circuit, what can we predict about patterns of spatial inhibition and that sort of thing? Okay, well, thank you for having me. And uh, that's an interesting question because the idea of form and function arises from the work of Ramon Cajal, right? He was the first one to put arrows to his pictures of neurons. And he predicted that that was the flow of information. And that was followed by uh, Sherrington and then Eccles' study with Sherrington. So everything makes sense to some extent. Although the one that came up with the theory of parallel of, of uh, sequential propagation of information from parallel fibers to Purkinje cells was Breitenberg. Um, and uh, it was based only on, in 1957, and it was based only on anatomical data. They didn't look at the electrophysiology. And they didn't take into account the role of inhibitory neurons, and that was that was the entire role. If you if you look at the at the book of the cerebellum as, as a neuronal machine by Eccles and colleagues, uh, you will see that they have a chapter on what is the um, no they they even even have a chapter. It's just a paragraph on the effects of interneurons, feed forward interneuron activity on Purkinje cells, and they created a model to predict that, to support their idea, basically, that it was not enough. It was not enough to cut the beam of Purkinje cells being activated one after the other. However, the experimental data is against that. 
I mean, the, once when I gave my uh, PhD talk, I had a slide showing that this, the experiment has been done in different animals in different decades and in different continents, right? And, and this, the result is the same. If you stimulate the, uh, 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 the granule cell layer, you will only see a patchy activation of Purkinje cells and not a beam of Purkinje cells. And I think that's, that's now accepted. And the answer is to take into account yes, the structure of the cerebellum, but also the big influence of inhibition, which was not taken into account at that time. So when people stimulate the parallel fibers and get this sequential activation, mm -hmm. where, where does that fit into it then? So, it's, I mean, you have 150,000 of these fibers per Purkinje cell. When you put an electrode, you're activating those 150,000 uh, orthodromic and the other 150,000 uh, antidromic uh, fibers. So it is not very surprising, I guess, I mean, just by putting those numbers, that you can overcome the inhibition of only uh, up to 1,500 inhibitory synapses. That's, that's a difference in numbers, right? In a, in a rat, you have 1,500 inhibitory synapses, and you have 150,000 parallel fibers. So it, uh, you have to take into account the natural conditions of the network uh, in order to interpret the results. And, and that's what we try to do with the models. Uh, the computer models, uh, uh, I think the intention uh, or the idea is like, um, the idea at that time when I arrived to the lab uh, for my PhDs what, was that, well, the beam doesn't propagate because the action potential is synchronized too fast. And the first thing I showed was that the desynchronization was not enough. And, it, and although that hypothesis was uh, accepted at the time, it was only a matter of looking at the time constant, uh, the passive time constant of the Purkinje cell. And you can see that the spread of the action potentials as they travel, because there's a differential of propagation velocity of the, of the action potentials depending on the position of the parallel fiber and the molecular layer. They are faster at the bottom, slower at the top. Uh, the, that volus of action potentials will desynchronize as they propagate. And the maximum desynchronization will be, I don't know, 15 milliseconds. And if you just, and, and we knew for, 50 years that the input resistance of Purkinje cells is 50 mega ohms. So there is no way to for the Purkinje cell at the passive just looking at the passive properties to distinguish from a synchronous wave of activity or an asynchronous wave of activity. So it's common to hear people say, "We've known the circuitry of the cerebellum. Look at the cerebellum. We've known the circuitry of the cerebellum for so long, yet we still don't know what the cerebellum does and." How it works. So, uh, if that's true, that we don't know what it does and how it works, I'm not sure that's true, but if it is true, then what do we need? Well, if, if, let's say we knew the circuitry of everything as well as we know the circuitry of the cerebellum, I suppose we would still say we still don't know how anything works. And at that point, what do we need next? What, what else do you need besides knowing the wiring diagram? Well, Charlie, what we need is timing, the timing of activation and Knowing just the circuitry, um, uh, we, we can know the circuitry, uh, circuitry of a computer uh, chip, and we can understand it because we know how the components of the circuit work functionally. We don't know that in cells. We don't know um, if action potentials will backpropagate or not. 
we don't know how fast uh, some synapses or how reliable some synapses will be or not. And that is the next step. First, of course, we have to know the uh, structure of the cerebellum. And the structure of the cerebellum is pretty well conserved, except for certain areas, like the vermis and the uh, old cerebellum, right? Uh, where you have these other funky cells uh, that are extra, like the, I think it's the chandelier cell and the brush cell. But, so you're uh, saying that if, so if we know the structure of the circuitry of the cerebellum, it may even give us um, the, the wrong assumption of what how it works. Because if we um, see 150,000 parallel fibers synapsing on one cell, and therefore we assume, since there are so many of them, that must be the predominant influence on a Purkinje cell, yet it's not that they are activated all at the same time. They may only be activated one at a time, and therefore using natural stimuli um, may help determine whether just because you have 150,000 synapses on one cell, that doesn't mean that that's the predominant influence on that cell. So just because you have a bunch of airports, that doesn't mean the airplanes are landing all the time. Right. Right, so a big pathway, presumably, then Carlos would not necessarily mean the primary input. And what I was struck by is, is of course, I'm going to bring the hippocampus up in this, even though it's a cerebellar <laughs> con conversation. But well, we know the circuitry of that one. I have well. patch pyramidal cells in my free time. <laughs> so it's not hated in the room. That's really nice no, to true. know. Okay. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, it was an interesting story because originally the hippocampus was thought to be a lamellar structure. It's mm. a sort of banana-shaped structure. And from physiological studies done by Perry Anderson, stimulating in different points along the axis would give selective excitation within a very narrow band, and they called this lamella. And people made the assumption that the three-stage circuit within the hippocampus was preserved within these lamella, sort of like slices of bread. Well, that was the physiological data, and it turned out to be artifactual. Because when you stimulated closer, those fibers ramify and narrow. When you looked at the anatomy, and this is the work of uh, David, uh, David Amaral and Minna Witter, what you actually see is that the hippocampus isn't lamellarly organized at all, circuit-wise. In fact, once you get past the mossy fibers, there's a very, very wide divergence of fibers all along the axis of the hippocampus. So it's sort of the opposite right. situation for me, where the, physio the, 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 the anatomy gave you one answer, but the physiology gave you... Yeah, another answer, mm. precise opposite with the hippocampus. And so I think that illustrates the necessity for both uh, conjunctive use of both procedures to really give some good Right. Answer. And I mean, the, the argument keeps growing in that direction because um, something similar happens, for example, in classical and non classical receptive fields, how um, you can. Uh, um, the, the, ter the terming, a classical receptive field with a dot of light and how it has been so difficult to determine the same classical receptive field when you have a natural uh, stimulus. Um, and we're talking about, I mean, in terms of a more abstract way of talking about neurons, is these are um, nonlinear systems, and we have uh, invested 100 years um, so far in classifying them with an impulse response. And when we deliver an per-pulse response, things can be completely different in terms of the entire circuitry. And I think that happens in the cerebellum to some extent. I have I did some simulations on that, and uh, I think one of James' students is trying to 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 do that experimentally. Uh, but I think you can see the same thing in in, in visual cortex. So I'm wondering if if you would uh, 
you'd be willing to go this far. Okay, uh, once we know the circuitry, and of course what we think we know about the circuitry can be wrong, it has to be right to be good, and then uh, once you got the circuitry, say that isn't enough, so you should get the timing, and once you've got the timing and the circuitry, uh, will, would you promise at that point to not ask for any more money to find anything else out because... That's enough to figure out how this works. I will works. never promise not to ask for more money. <laughs> That's for sure. That's the only thing that is certain. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but um, I think that will be a, a very good uh, point in, in, in the career of any neuroscientist, right? To know the anatomy and the timing of activity of your elements, which includes the electrophysiology, right? Uh, you can start thinking about and this, we're talking about snapshots. We're not talking about the dynamical aspects of not only the synaptic waves, but the um, excitability of dendritic trees. That I think uh, there is good evidence, like Dan Johnson's uh, uh, work, showing that uh, probably that's the side of learning, right? If, of, of, well, we have synaptic plasticity, and that will be expressed in the changes in excitability of the dendritic trees. And that's a different story. So you've, you've described, this actually is related to my next question, so you've described um, yourself as, as a map maker. So you've, 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 uh, you, your approach has been to, to model observations um, by a number of experimental techniques to generate uh, morphological maps, electrical maps, diffusive maps, and biochemical maps of dendrites, of dendritic trees. Uh, so I guess... I'm kind of asking the same question as Charlie. What steps will be necessary to reconcile these for a, a unified model of dendritic processing, learning, whatever you want to call it, plasticity? And you know, what, what's the holy grail sort of experiment there that puts everything together into it? Well, experimentally, I mean, th there are several things that are converging right now. I mean, this is almost a, uh, what people like to talk about, saying, oh, the future is so close that I have to wear shades kind of talk. But... But now I think we are, we're in that state because uh, the problem is data acquisition and, and uh, processing of the data and the modeling of the data. Uh, now, I mean, now, like in my lab, I have a parallel machine, right? I mean, that couldn't happen eight years ago. And it's cheap, right? Um, um, to photon imaging and not only the not only the imaging and the imaging of of, of structures, uh, you can get so much with it. But interacting at the subcellular level with neurons is what is giving us a lot of information. So you can hatch a cell, look at the electrophysiology, and uncage goodies. Right? You can uncage glutamate. You can uncage ATP. You can uncage GABA. Um, calcium, IP3, and now you can even buy a kit that will label or cage uh, almost any protein, right? So the question is um, uh, how, how, what is the research plan here? And a good research plan, just because there's a lot of, uh, of research done on this field, is uh, synaptic plasticity. We know a lot about it. There's a lot of interest because we believe that that is the best model we have for learning and memory. And we know the input, and we know the output. It's changes in spiking activity of the cell. And, and we can track the, the signals. We know the input signals, which are basically calcium, 
Um, and we know the basic targets of that molecule. Now we can start going down the, um, the, the bio biochemical cascade. And that's what we kind of did in the, well, my, I was a collaborator in this paper of Tanaka et al. But that's what um, uh, she has been doing, right? And uh, uh, now going into, the, we know the calcium, we know the IP3. Now let's look at PKC and MAP kinase and how they interact. And what is the timing of this signal? And that is important. And that's what that paper is all about. And that's why I think it's a really cool thing. Yeah, but if you play if you play the devil's advocate on there, you say we know lots of things and we can start to do this and this and this. But isn't that just more snapshots that you have together and you don't know when you start to put them together, you're talking about how things are nonlinear, that things are not you you gotta get the right timing of what things are really like. That even though you know lots of snapshots, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're really gonna you're that close to uh, uh, understanding the system that you gotta pull out your sunglasses. Well, the uh, understanding of the system is how much prediction power you have from based on the models you create. So you take the snapshots of calcium IP3, PKC, and CAMKNase and see if you can predict how you can either block LTP or LTD or induce it in different ways. Um, and uh, for example, this paper uh, predicted that PKC and MAPKNase will interact, and those were the ones that will induce LTP. Right, LTD. Sorry, we're getting too too much into hippocampus. Sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> and uh, what they did is to uh, induce activation of PKC independently and induce activation of MAPKNase independently, and they were able to see depletion of APA receptors. And that was the power of the model. So, so that that is what, uh, what Todd's saying is: what is the method of making no mistake? Right? There's a what did Eccles when Eccles looked at this correct image of the cerebellar circuit mm -hmm. and went wrong by assuming that that inhibition wouldn't be enough. Mm -hmm. right? That's what you said earlier. Mm -hmm. um, how can we avoid that? How can we not make that same mistake with, when, with every new piece of data that come up? Eccles wasn't, it wasn't a dumb no. mistake. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a, how do you know which, whether it's going to be enough? And so... How do we not just keep repeating those mistakes and over and over? That those well, mistakes? the way I do it is do not extend the power of your modeling or just not modeling in term in general modeling, right? I mean, everybody has a model of what you are doing uh, too far from the data. I mean, you have to stick to the data, and the data was there; it hasn't changed, right? The things that they were interpreting. You know, to fit the, uh, their, their idea of the anatomy. And uh, you have to detach yourself from that. You have to say, well, what is the data is telling us? And if our models can predict this. And if not, something is wrong. You can say, well, the cat is wrong, or the model is wrong, or the experiment is not preparing the, in, in, in the right way, or there's an imbalance. And that was the, co the conversation for 10 years was that um, the uh, anesthesia will generate an imbalance. And that's why you will see uh, no beams of percutaneous cells in cerebellum. I think uh, that that we we have put to rest that, uh, that idea. And, uh, because, so, so I think uh, what you said was you can, you know how to not do the wrong experiment, but how do you have the right 
model. So was it, it seems to me that Eccles did sort of make a mistake, and the mistake that he made was his model was an intuitive one, and not a formal model, not a, a, a real mathematical treatment of his idea, mm -hmm. but it was just a, I intuit that the inhibition is not enough. Mm -hmm. And that an awful lot of what we do in the way of interpretation ends up being that. I look at my data and I think it means this. Why do you think that? I just do. And is there a way around that? It seems to me that maybe, the reason I ask you this question is because it seems to me that maybe uh, formal models may provide some protection against that kind of mistake. True, I mean, and balance. Uh, when, when I build this computer model of the cerebellar cortex, um, uh, I, I was coming as an, I didn't, I didn't know much about neurobiology at the time, and it's not that I know too much now, but the idea was at the time, well, instead of trying to create models that replicate the experiments and then try to build one, a meta model, what I told myself is, let's just build an, an what I called at that time an encyclopedic model. And let's, and let's just start from the anatomy. I mean, from the beginning, right? So how many granule cells you have per Purkinje cell? How many stellate cells you have? How they connect? How can I model the connectivity between parallel fibers and inhibitory neurons? And how can I model the, the delays between inhibitory neurons and Purkinje cells? And we knew those things existed. That you, could, you couldn't argue against the existence of these things. And and then go through the different hypotheses that existed at the time. Uh, one that the um, um, that exciting uh, uh, granule cells um, that that the excitation of, of the natural excitation was such that not enough granule cells were stimulated, and therefore you could the the beam was subthreshold. And then I, I the first thing I did is like, well, let's just stimulate very few granule cells and show that even in the model, uh, you always get a beam. And then the other one's the one that I just, that I explained before, the desynchronization, uh, and show that we always <coughs> had a beam. And the only way to block the beam was with the presence of inhibitory neurons. So that was the, hypo there, the model gave us the, the experimental hypothesis. And it was clear, so just go to the experiment stick electrodes, and dump bicuculina. That's what I did. I mean, I built uh, something called that I called a menorah. I, I designed a multi-unit electrode thing that stuck four electrodes along the parallel fibers. It um, should have been seven. Huh? Seven. So, yeah, well, I mean... It was menorah-like. It was menorah-like. I mean, uh, Santa Maria <laughs> comes from uh, from uh, Jewish uh, that moved to the, to the uh, uh, New World, as a matter of fact. Anyway... So, four uh, electrodes, and then a fifth holding a, a, a syringe, and then I injected bicuculin, and then the parallel fiber, the, the beam of Purkinje cells appeared. So keeping in that, I agree with you, keeping the models as faithful to the, to the uh, data uh, is, uh, is the way to do it, I think. So... Sorry, go ahead, Brian. Oh, I was, I was going to... Uh, it sounds like you're going to go on another no, topic. No, 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 absolutely not. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was sort of going to 
change it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. Since we're on the topic of synaptic plasticity, uh, one of the things that, that has been a, a big area of interest in the hippocampus is bidirectional plasticity. And uh -huh. The fact that you can see both LTP and LTD. And that's very important because it allows for a number of things to happen, like normalization, perhaps erasure of information, uh, self-organization. Follows competitive learning rules on so neural network theory. It's uh, something that's really crucial. Is there a counterpart to LTD in the cerebellum? That is, is hippocampus is LTP, and now we have LTD. You have LTD. Is there a cerebellar LTP? Yes, there is. And there is this the group from Erasmus uh, University has been active on this, and they showed that, although there's some discussion about this. Um, if I remember correctly, what they show is that with high cal calcium concentration, you get LTD. With low calcium concentration, you get LTP, which is a reverse BCM loop. Uh -huh. uh, what uh, the, the experiments that uh, we did in the lab with Tanaka, uh, with uh, Keiko Tanaka, uh, they never saw LTP with low calcium. And I think the the you know to marry these two experimental results. It seems that the LTP at low calcium is that you basically don't get the LTD that is being generated is masked by presynaptic LTP. Uh -huh. But yes, there's some LTP and um, uh, it is related to uh, second mess to to uh, diffusive uh, messengers um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. So so uh, I I don't know all the literature there, but yes, there is a little bit of LTP. Okay. Self organization is possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, can I ask a jumble question here? If I may? It's oh, um, <clears throat> the very first question I had to do with, the, with sort of theories of cerebellum and you know how the cerebellum works. And sort of the second question that I think some asked you is more in relation that you came up with ideas about analyzing biochemical pathways. So, you're talking about sort of really huge change in levels here, so you're going all the way from the systems level right down to the the biochemistry detail molecular level. So my question is simply this, is how do you sort of propose to cross these scales, and how do you integrate across scales, and how do you use information? Let's say, let's say you analyze one of these gigantic biochemical pathways, and you examine, so you look at this big pathway, and you come across some, some sort of key reaction, and how do you relate it ultimately to the functioning of, say, you know, the, the organism as a whole, or even just the brain itself? even one select pathway. It's not very clear to me. Do you do it computationally, combinations of computations, experiments? I mean, what do you think in general? What, what is the approach here? I, I think nobody has it clear. Um, um, but if, if it is going to, to happen, it's going to happen in Purkinje cells because we know a lot about the morphology, we know about the structure, and we know a lot more about the biochemical pathways related to synaptic plasticity than in the hippocampus. I mean, the role of calcium in, in LTP so and, and the compartmentalization, <laughs> there you have it. Uh, I don't study that. <laughs> the compartmentalization of calcium, it is not as clear cut as, uh, and the need for calcium for <coughs> the induction of LTP compared to what we know in LTD uh, in, the, in the cerebellum. Um, uh, we know more about no, 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 what happens in the... But, but let me, I mean... If it's going to happen, it's going to happen here, I believe. And how do you marry these things? Um, well, what 
The next big thing, I think, is to track the calcium signal that goes to the sonar. And the map kinase signal, right? Uh, that happens in, in the in the in the in the in CA1 pyramidal cells, but it happens in, in the Purkinje cells as well. And now we have molecular probes. Uh, um, and that's not an ad for the company, but uh, we can we can it's, we have molecular probes that can be fluorescent and track. We can st start thinking about tracking these signals all the way as we believe, or the model says, they travel all the way to the to the to the to the nucleus. That's the 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 forward uh, uh, pathway that we need to track. The backward. Uh, uh, track is CREB, um, but we don't know what CREB uh, produces and probably produces everything, right? Or nothing, something in between. Yeah. That's uh, fast. I know. Uh -huh. But but what is the signal that gets generated, and how does that signal? How is that signal delivered back to the synapses? And that is a, a mind-boggling question, at least to me. And those are that is the scientific. I think that's the research. Uh, uh, But if I may pursue this, um, sure, you've identified one particular, say, one particular element in this whole thing, and it's a relevant question. I do not dispute it. But my question is more sort of has, there's a more philosophical problem, I think, and that problem is the more the more we know, the more complicated it gets. These these biochemical pathways are immense; they're huge networks. My question simply is, how do you know you pick the relevant one to study, and how do you know that that is the one that's going to yield? So well, a priori, you don't. But uh, if you you think it is, then you have to predict either with your model or your mental model or your or your computer model what the effect is going to be right. and test it. I mean, that's just part of, of the scientific endeavor. I think this is a, goes back to a really fundamental question about what types of models you prefer? What sort of modeler are you? Do you prefer realistic models that are uh, really specific to, s to singular problems or more general, simple models? And so, I, I mean, it seems like there are two different levels to be sort of addressing issues. Like, for example, with plasticity, I mean, there's a the hippocampal literature and then there's the cerebellar literature. And on the one hand, there's there are some really great generalizable models, um, universal models. And on the other hand, things sort of diverge in terms of, you know, the receptor types and, and the two different types of synapses. Are you interested in the more general issues, or are you interested in, in at the principal level, or are we talking about defining a circuit and what, I, I don't think the there is, is. A, a big uh, problem in that. Uh, the, if you study uh, uh, LTD in detail, the molecules, mo many of the molecules involved are going to be very similar, and the mechanisms of formulation or tra and transport are going to be similar in both cases. Of course, we have um, my take on this is to create physically based models or biophysically based models. Uh, abstract modeling can take you so far. In, maybe it's more applicable to um, coding questions uh, in which you abstract neurons into a point source uh, mechanism. But even there, I have my doubts. Right, but that's a personal. Uh, opinion. Uh, in biochemical networks, you have to know which molecules are being activated where and when. 
You know, uh, this, this is really very interesting given the talk you gave yesterday uh -huh. where you said, well, we really don't know the location of, the, of all the proteins in the postsynaptic density, so I'm just going to take an abstract model and put a bunch of random obstacles and try to figure out what the properties of that system are, even though we, we, we don't know anything. That's, that's sort of what science is, isn't it? <laughs> but, sure. There. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit, because oh, okay. I think we should probably introduce this um, sort of as its own, under its own subheading here. So you, you showed in a recent paper that um, we're talking about uh, movement of, of synaptic substrates here. You've shown that, uh, that substrates in these synaptic densities um, show what's called anomalous diffusion. And a lot of people, uh, and that's due to molecular crowding. So a lot of people have a really strong reaction to that term. Let's first introduce anomalous diffusion, because that's, I think Todd is referring to some of the stuff that came out of uh, the discussion about uh -huh. that. Um, so could you explain a little bit about what you mean by it uh, within the context of the synaptic compartment? That's one issue. Um, do you believe it's applicable to all neurons, or is it something specific to um, circuits that require plasticity? I mean, is it, um, are there analogies in non-biological systems that may give mm -hmm. us some ideas about so, calculations and... Which so, for example, the, the, the story of, uh, of uh, determining that there's anomalous diffusion in neurons is that uh, when you uh, cause a sudden increase of, of soluble molecules in the cytosol, in the spiny dendrites, and you try to track the dispersion of these molecules along dendrites, you see that they, they disperse slower, way slower than when you really um, increase, uh, make a local increase of these molecules in a smooth dendrite. And if you track uh, this, the spatial spread of these molecules uh, in spiny dendrites, you don't see a linear relationship, which is what is predicted by Einstein's uh, uh, law of diffusion. Uh, instead, what you see is a nonlinear relationship, and that linear re nonlinear relationship is a more of a power law. That means that the spread, the, the, um, the spatial spread, is proportional to a power of time. And in the case of anomalous subdiffusion, that is anomalous diffusion. And anomalous subdiffusion is when that that power is lower than one, it's less than one. Um, and what happened there is that our models predicted, although these models were abstract, these models were not to be able to specifically replicate each one of the experiments, but they were inspired on the average dendritic uh, diameter and the average shape of spines present in Purkinje cells. We, in the models um, First, and this was interesting, a, a, a PhD physicist from, from, from Belgium who uh, started programming uh, this, this uh, program at the beginning, he said, oh, nothing interesting is going to come out of this because it's just a diffusion equation and at the end, everything's going to settle down and it's going to be like a pipeline of oil. Um, but it turns out that uh, molecules were being temporarily trapped in spines they will enter the spine, get trapped a little bit, come out, and continue their, their travel along the dendrite. And that trapping, with different time constants of trapping, depending on the shape of the spine, generated um, this anomalous diffusion. Anomalous diffusion arises from different waiting times, these molecules stopping a little bit on their way, diffusing along the dendrite. 
but the important thing, and, uh, and referring to Todd's question, is that even though it's, this was a, a, an abstract model, the, exper the experimental prediction was there already, right? Spines create anomalous diffusion. Lack of spines do not create anomalous diffusion. So we went back to the experiments. We, uh, we used this techni technique of photolysis to um, uncage molecules, fluorescent molecules in spiny dendrites and smooth dendrites. And um, we confirmed that in the smooth dendrites, basically diffusion is normal. And in spiny dendrites was highly anomalous. So that was one paper, but then we continued working on, on pyramidal cells, and that was a different problem because the question is, oh, well, Purkinje cells have 150,000 of these spines. So it's kind of the natural place to see anomalous diffusion. Okay, let's move to, instead of using a confocal microscope, which was, which was very useful for Purkinje cells because the dendrites of Purkinje cells are planar, we move to a two-photon microscope. So we could see pyramidal cells, CA1 pyramidal cells. And we use a different uh, uh, caging mechanism and uh, a different setup completely. And the density of spines and the shape of spines in, in pyramidal cells is different from Purkinje cells. We had some predictions from our models. And then I went and uncaged in pyramidal cells. It turns out that it's very difficult to find sections of dendrites without spines. But you can count the spines because there are fewer. In Purkinje cells, even with a two-photon microscope, it's very difficult to count the spines because they're one on top of the other. So I counted the spines, and my models predicted that the anomalous exponent was going to be linearly proportional to the density of the spines. And I did the experiments, and that is true. That sounds like a statement. Proving the power of abstract models. Right, right. It is abstract model, but it is abstract model to the extent of what you can see. We cannot measure the influence. But, but what I found in pyramidal cells, and this is something still controversial among my, my collaborators, is, well, it, there seems to be a higher value of anomalous diffusion when you project the, the, the curve to zero spines to smooth dendrites, and that that worried me at the beginning, and I redid experiments, and I analyzed and reanalyzed the data, and I started thinking, well, maybe, they, and there's information from E. coli experiments that there's anomalous diffusion in these cells. And then I started thinking, well, maybe is what my first idea was, that maybe the cytoskeleton, maybe the intercellular organelles, maybe this, the presence of macromolecules is creating anomalous diffusion in the cytosol, and there's a difference between pyramidal cells and Purkinje cells at that level. And that's what I've been doing lately in models, and that's what we're trying to prove experimentally. So even though you're, these abstract models are abstract, in, are abstract, but they're at the level of the experiments we're doing. If, if the experiments tell us, well, you have to make a better model, we, we have to do it. But what you cannot do is to just assume that diffusion is the same in neurons than in oil pipelines. First, you have to prove it. So an oil pipeline model would be too abstract. 
It, well, it will be normal diffusion mass transport, right? Because molecules are uh, behaving as uh, flux. Yeah, but I, don't, I disagree with that you first have to, to, to prove that that's not the case. For example, What you just talked about is that in terms of about the, the, your models assumed that the interior uh, macromolecules were the same between pyramidal cells and Purkinje cells in the sense that you didn't put them in the model. Mm-hmm. And then you found something predicted from the model that was wrong, right? And then you go back and prove it. So you didn't prove, you didn't have to do it before to know what you assumed in the model, namely there were no net yeah. So it goes both ways, right? You have to just be careful going both ways. There's no one dominant uh, but, way. But uh, I think I think uh, here's uh, who here the, the models are driving the experimental question. You find something new, you go back to the models, and this is the way the scientific process, at least in from my perspective, is working. Um, and I think it works in it's, it's hypothesis driven, and the hypothesis is created by a computer model. And now we have we have gained uh, even even we have we have found um, uh, results that were not expected, and now we can create a new hypothesis that we can explore in detail in the in the models and say well which we we can say well if it is the cytoskeleton we are going to see this kind of diffusion if we if it is the organelles we're going to see this kind of diffusion and if it is the micro macromolecules we're going to see this other kind of and then we can start devising um, envisioning experiments to try to prove each one of these three points. And that's what we're trying to do. Right. And, and, and the point I want to make here, too, is also it's, it's not just the macromolecules. The spine morphology itself is really ideal to compartmentalize any kind of local kind of chemical reaction mm-hmm. within a particular spot. And I think it's going to be a common theme in all cells, mm-hmm. not just neurons, but all cells, that they're compartmentalized biochemical processes based on morphology. Right. And we know that with hippocampus, there is a very, very large increase in calcium concentration within spines, but it doesn't, it only partially diffuses to the dendrites, but both have roles in plasticity in that low calcium allows a depression along Mm -hmm. other synapses and spines along that dendrite, or the spine that had the most calcium. It slows restricted by the spine neck, Mm -hmm. which they now know does not change in size. They had assumed that maybe the spine neck changing may increase synaptic strength. Right. Not to change, but I think this idea of compartmentalizing uh, function, uh, biochemical functions by structure, mm-hmm. regulates function. Yeah, and what we're seeing in this, uh, ser- in, well, this paper that I published in November, and uh, it's going to become a series, I guess, is that also spines are there not only to compartmentalize the biochemical signals uh, that arise from the synaptic activity, but to capture molecules that are moving along. The dendrites, right. and their shape will determine how long these molecules will remain in the spines, and and the more you capture them, the more efficient they can become in activating their substrate. So, when you were just talking about spines, I had actually had a question um, when I read your your neuron paper. So it, it's it's been propo- proposed actually by um, Kristen Harris that. Um, thin spines or learning spines and the more bulbous the pancake-headed mushroom spines or memory spines and that LTP mediates the transition between the thin state to the, well, LTP and LTD kind of mediate the transition between the two in both directions. So you've you've shown that increasing spine density um, in Purkinje cells results in um, anomalous diffusion of your volume marker. Um, 
and more, more so in, in the bulbous type spines. So do you think um, that trapping as a result of this kind of diffusion is more or less suited to learning or memory? Does that distinction mean anything to you? In, in, well, you, uh, I, I, you can, you can, I mean, this is a simulation that I just have to do um, to illustrate the point. Just imagine uh, dendrite with uh, the same uh, uh, homogeneous density of spines and uh, the same shape, of the same shape. So there is no advantage in terms of, uh, in average, of the molecules being trapped in one or the other. When you induce LTP or LTD, you can modify the shape of a few of these molecules. So you, even if it is forever you, that you change the shape or not, uh, you will have a trans, tra transitory difference of how effectively or not these spines um, capture biochemical signals that are traveling on the dendrite with respect to the neighbors. And that differential um, activation of biochemical signalings uh, from a um, homeostatic level uh, can, can trigger all these effects on, on learning and memory. So that's why we're proposing this uh, anomalous diffusion and capturing of biochemical signals by spines as a way of um, to solve the synaptic tagging problem. Um, synaptic tagging is when you activate a few synapse, uh, synapses and you want to deliver some product to them, but uh, how do you know which, which spine to go to, right? And we're saying, well, it's because of the change of, of the shape. So it seems like in a general way, so we, we started talking about structure or function, right? So now we're talking about structure being functional, right? So if you right. change structure, you change the function, yes. right? Mm -hmm. And then so maybe then there's no distinction anymore because part of the distinction was that you had a structure, the static, right? And how that facilitated function. But now you, some of the things about compartmentalizing internal compartments and changing diffusion and capturing molecules, right? You're compartmentalizing these reactions, but it's, potential for these reactions to change the shape of your compartmentalization, right? So now you just have you just have another thing besides the biochemical networks and stuff that are also complicated. Now you have that interacting with the cytosolical structure, all these other kinds of structures, various organelles and various kinds of things, and you talked about right. changes in binding, give effective changes in, in diffusion and so forth. Now you just have another set of, of concerns that can interact, and these interacting networks, you know, you've made, you've made another one, electrical, biochemical, and now structural kinds of things, and they all, they all interact. Um, you so, say it like it's a bad thing. Yeah. Well, no, that keeps us employed. Yeah, well, I mean, do you think, that, do you think that's true? I mean, yeah, I mean in some ways, the, in the key, it seems like a key link is that, that there are the, these, these particularly complicated changes in diffusion that that weren't just diffusion, right? That makes it more interesting and more controllable as doing something interesting. So that I mean, it really seems like a key is, is some of the aspects of the stuff that you're looking at in terms of the so, linkage. So you, so... So like, for instance, yeah. if, you, if you block acting polymerization... Oh, that's, a, that's what I'm proposing to do <laughs> in my well, application. That Great. brings Did up it, a question that I Does that mean I, I get to be a yeah. co-author? Uh, maybe. Oh, please. <laughs> Get me on the door. Um, okay, so... Well, so does that change the way we think about, I mean, 
So that seems like to open up a whole new... Of course, it's a paradigm shift. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I always wanted to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think, well, do you think it is? I mean, how, how is it going to, is it going to really sweep and change things a lot? Or is it just going to be a lot of hard slogging, just makes things complicated, people stay in their own domains and some connections? Well, I don't know how other people will do it, but I think, I think, uh, what I like to think in this case, or what we are, we think we're showing is that it seems that the shape can have a tremendous effect on the biochemical uh, uh, spread of uh, um, biochemical signals. What we haven't shown is if it is important but the other issue for is the also, functioning of the cell. We, we just don't cage volume markers. Right. Yeah, the, the other issue that seems really important is to figure out how flexible in time the system is. I mean, how, how quickly can these changes happen? And, and, and is that a bio, I mean, will it, will it be on a biological Well, it seems that it's, uh, it is, right? Yeah. We, we know that you induce high frequency, you do deliver high frequency stimulations, cells will swell fast. And stay there like for an hour or so. The, the, the spines, right? Or they will shrink. And um, well, I mean, that's that. That was just a correlation uh, example, and and we are putting a, a context to those uh, to to, the, to those results. How do you introduce the idea of, of topographic specificity of input to something like this? I mean, that's another level. Um, beyond that sort of, or do we not want to think about that? Do, until you what what do you mean by, by, like, where, the, 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 it, at the circuit level, I mean, where inputs are coming from, and where, well, you know, Well, I think, I think one fascinating area Cause a lot is, of this is, about is, is compartmentalizing uh, driving and modulatory synapses in, in, in the cortex, right? So the driving synapses is a Gray and Morris uh, idea, right? The driving synapses right. will 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 synapse on the apical tuft. There is a lot of there is some electrophysiological work um, paired with uh, modeling. Uh, the modeling came from Linas lab that shows that the apical tuft is highly coupled to the soma, and the basal dendrites are not that coupled. And and I think there you can start uh, asking what is going to happen in terms of well, how they affect biochemical signaling there, how, how different it is. It's an interesting question, and how that will affect the, the behavior of the, of the network is, uh, is something interesting, definitely. Oh, this is about the amper, the, the, the formation of these plaques, what you call the postsynaptic density, these amper uh, molecules. So you said it came out of your simulations on anomalous diffusion to mm -hmm. introduce obstacles. I sort of was. I thought that's that's sort of a it's 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 important in many respects. Partly because it's of its implications in endocytosis, right? So if you, any 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 time you have endocytosis, you need to sort of, for example, in cholesterol uptake and LDL uh, receptors, it's a very sort of very common things. So it's important. But one wasn't clear to me, and I think sort of we touched upon this in the seminar yesterday was what what is the role of what is really the role of diffusion versus the role of biochemical reactions? I mean, what kind of what kind of abstract models will generate this? Because this is like pattern formation in some sense. Right? I mean you go back to Turing's paper on morphogenesis in a classic fifty two nineteen fifty two paper uh -huh. on morphogenesis and filtrons, uh, he really m specifies these sort of this formation of patterns. 
And I was wondering why you need a stochastic system to do it. You can just do this with a nonlinear system. And have you explored it, and what, what do you think about it? Well, why, I don't know, right? I mean, why is uh, very out of this world why question. Why posit? Why po I what? mean, you, can, you don't have to turn mm. it into that. You can right. say, why posit uh, uh, stochastic systems? Why not just build your model around the idea of a completely deterministic system? Right. Because, because then the thing is that because the problem in Monte Carlo simulations is they become very ad hoc. You do not have a principal way of exploring the capabilities of the model or exploring the predictive power of the model. With a, an analytical model, uh, you could you could really sort of explore many. But my ambitions are experimentally driven. It is whatever the experiment tells you. If the experiment tells me that it is not a Monte Carlo. Process, a stochastic process will switch to a deterministic process. So far, what I have shown data-wise is that everything fits nicely with a, with a stochastic process. And um, the experiments tracking AMPA receptors on the surface of, of, of the cell, that seems to be a stochastic. That looks like, it looks like random walk, smells like random walk. So we say it's random walk. Mm. Sure, there could be something underneath moving it. Nobody has. <laughs> no, there no, could be. I, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. this is this where the disagreement comes in. Is that I don't, I don't believe that it's a purely diffusional mechanism will generate it. Well, and but know. again, it's it's about what you can prove in terms of the experiment, and the experiment is telling you it is random walk. So I think Rama is asking about where the postsynaptic density forms. Right, how is it And you're talking about how a receptor finds the existing uh -huh. postsynaptic density. Yeah, so it's, yeah the postsynaptic density, the there seems to be a lot of scaffolding proteins that bring, that it seems to be, and I'm not, uh, I would like to do this in the future, but um, that the cell is putting a lot of energy in keeping the postsynaptic density as a rigid sheet. Yes, but that's the the sheet is built just below the membrane. It is not in the membrane, okay? It is just below the membrane, and there seems to be a lot of energy put into that. You can you okay. can have this directed construct. Of course, there's a directed construction. I mean, cells are polar, and that's yes. telling you that there's a direction in the code to build them, and. And that can be true also in the postsynaptic density, but the movement of these molecules can be totally random. Everything, everything that you say, and I agree with all of it. Everything you say points, sort of inexorably, almost points, you know, in in one direction, that this is a very classic reaction diffusion system. As you said, it's a non-equilibrium phenomena, it's a dissipative phenomena. You need energy to keep to keep it in place. But I would say that you know, then the next step is a question. Questions sort of pop pop up: Is it stable? How long does these do these plaques persist? Do they form patterns? Do they form spirals? Do they appear and disappear? Are they sort of stationary in time? Are they homogeneous in space? I mean, you know, I, I just want to know where is your modeling taking you and what kind of questions are likely to be? Well, it is experimental work that is taking us there. It's what I told you, uh, the statements that I did about the PSD being rigid, it's an experimental result. It is not about the model. And so you're just basically a data-driven 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, the, I don't want to take my models to 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 say, well, what if we change the pattern of the PSD? We don't know the pattern. I think of it the just PSD. has to do with what question you're asking. Yeah, yeah. You say, well, I assume that the no, PSD is already there, and I don't ask myself how no, but it's I think, there mm-hmm. or what keeps it there. Yeah, what, what do you and, then I, uh, and then I say I'm data-driven. Well, I mean, I could just, at, at any point, you can say, I assume that the that the synapses are the way they are, the amper receptors are where they are, and then uh, I want to go from there, and therefore, you know, I, I think that's just... Or it's a, the or it's a matter, matter of scale, perhaps, just that the PSDs tend to hang out a little bit longer than amper receptors floating by. Mm-hmm. And so if we're talking about the scale, the scale of diffusion right. of amper receptors at that scale... PSDs are pretty much permanent, but at a perhaps longer time scale, PSDs are not permanent. So right. it's just yeah. a matter of and what this is, is just when a, are you looking at these things? Right. And what this is is just a replication of a level of analysis problem that we have in neuroscience in general, whether you're looking at behavior or exactly. you're looking at molecular exactly. biology. People who are interested in LTP now are looking at insertion of subunits into the postsynaptic density, which is a pretty involved process, and it apparently requires a lot of energy and a lot of work and a lot of molecules. Mm-hmm. And now what, what it looks like Fidel is saying is like, okay, we have the postsynaptic density. Let's start at the next step. What happens after the postsynaptic density? What's happening in the spine? And that's the next question. But I think the, we talk about timescales here. I really think that one of the most interesting things about what Fidel told us about yesterday was, so you have these structural obstacles, right? And if you change the, the, the binding affinity of those obstacles, in terms of the diffusion, they become uh, they become holes, right? So if you look at diffusion, and you think about these obstacles, you think of this structure that's there. It's, it's in this structure there, and we're talking about things being fixed in the postsynaptic density. But if some of the molecules, when they can't bind their obstacles, now when they can bind, um, then then their passageways. Then what you have is you have a real you have a biochemical way of altering uh, of altering structure and changing the diffusion and then you really have a really strong potentially very fast link of changing structure and I, that really becomes the structure really becomes dynamic in, in the way you think about things mm-hmm. and you're really talking about a particularly very interesting link between the biochemistry and what we thought about as structure and diffusion I mean you talk about diffusion and you have these obstacles and and analysis diffusion in spines, it's all well and good, but we think about OLTP, you change the shape of spines. But what if you change the shape of your diffusion uh, compartments by just you know, uh, making something bind to something or not? I mean, it's very different about what diffusion is. I mean, it makes it very dynamic, interesting. Well, the thing is that the way we have thought in, about biochemical signaling in neurons, um, at least uh, in neurons, sorry, is without... Just as as I have said, we think about them as fluxes of matter, and um, we haven't thought about them as real molecules that can collide and uh, they combine and they can rotate and do do things that molecules do. And it is just to that's why I'm saying that we should respect the molecule, right? We should treat them as molecules and see how far. Uh, how far we can study that at that level, and how many interesting things we can uh, come out come up uh, uh, with these models? Because if we just assume that it's a flux, we are are losing all this richness that uh, I think uh, is important. It's a very multicultural version of uh, 
what happens in the in the, the dendrite. You know, you got to see molecules as individuals instead of just the massive crowd. So if we knew all the molecules and how they were connected to each other, would we know how the cerebellum works? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think on that note, <laughs> I think, we're, uh, I think that, that this is a great discussion. Thanks everyone for spending your Friday afternoon here on a beautiful day with us. This is great, and we'll see many of you next week, hopefully. Thanks, Fidel. Thank you very much for having me.